Welcome to The Aesthetic City Podcast, a show in which we try to find out how to make our towns and cities more livable, beautiful and long-lasting. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of The Aesthetic City. Today's guest has been here before. He's an urbanist, developer and writer living in New York City. He co-founded Backyard, a real estate startup, and studied urban and environmental planning at the University of Virginia. He also writes for the Metropolis column for Medium. I'm very happy to have him back. So please welcome from New York, Kobe Lefkowitz. Welcome back, Kobe. Ruben, it's great to be here. I, I'm really excited to be a, a second time podcast guest, uh, you know, as, as a great fan of the show and uh, really loved our first conversation. I'm excited to be back here again for part two. Yeah, this I think this is the first second time episode with, uh, with a guest. So uh, yeah, it's really great. So how was your July 4th? It was great. Uh, our July 4th in, in my family has always been about family. I, I think as it is for, for many Americans, it's one of the few holidays mm -hmm. where everyone gets together. Um, it kind of an excuse to have a broader family reunion. So I have family from all over the country, get to catch up with them for the once or, or twice a year. Um, I get to see them. Uh, so it was, it was really nice. Uh, how was your nice. regular yeah. July 4th without it being a holiday? Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you have a nice weekend? Busy, busy, busy. Well, I mean, now I, I kind of work for myself, so I do have a bit of freedom to, uh, well, to be a bit more flexible with what I do and how I do it. But I must say I've been very busy uh, recording podcasts and uh, editing them since next week. The traditional architecture and urbanism summer school in Utrecht will start, where I will be uh, one of the guides and uh, will be there full time for three weeks. So that's going to be an interesting time. I've been reading a bit about it and I've listened to uh, some, some of your work on it. And I'm just excited to hear all the takeaways and how the first summer uh, school goes. I, I know it's something that you've been working really hard on um, and, and something that is certainly in, in much need. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's a uh, in the Netherlands at least. It is a uh, one of its kind. Um, in Europe, there's already several others. The Engelsberg one in Sweden was a uh, yeah the original summer school, I guess. But now you have some other yeah quite a quite a few actually going on this theme. But I think ours is more focused on urbanism and not mm. only architecture. And uh, but it's it's going to be fascinating at least. And uh, I think it's going to be great with all the students. But I will definitely keep you updated once it's it happened. Perhaps first a little question about, uh, because you live in New York City. So, of course, New York City is well known for its skyscrapers. Do you think high-rise buildings or skyscrapers make a place inherently better? Because in the Netherlands, we have a lot of well, politicians and, yeah, we have a lack of space. And in a lot of minds lives the thought that high-rise is the only way to, um, mm. to, to get this density, to get these homes and that it will also make a place a bit more lively and it will it will improve a place in some ways but i really wonder what your ideas on it are as a new york city resident yeah so it's a question that gets batted around a lot in, in urbanist circles the best way or, or perhaps the optimal way to achieve density i th there's roughly two schools of thought and maybe maybe two and a half maybe, maybe there's a a middle ground between the two the one is, is the New York City and Chicago School of Skyscrapers. Um, these were mm -hmm. pre-World War II designed, uh, mostly masonry built. Um, it, well, steel frame, but the, the bases required, um, were required to be much broader than, than modern skyscrapers um, for, for a number of technological yeah. reasons. Um, but from an urban composition perspective, these pre-war skyscrapers were, were beautiful. Um, they were much larger than anything that came before them, uh, much more imposing in some respects, especially the early Chicago skyscrapers. Yeah. Um, the, the New York uh, skyscrapers after the 1916 um, zoning law was passed have this very peculiar form, uh, this wedding cake form, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with and, and some listeners yeah. are familiar with as well, yeah. which lends a distinct and a unique identity um, to allow for, for light to uh, filter down below to the, to the streets. Um, and it has a really lovely effect. When, when you walk by some of these pre-war skyscrapers in New York, um, they are large, they're grand, but they feel yeah. welcoming in some ways and they feel aspirational. And I think part of that's from the materiality that's used. I think part of it is um, because of the composition mm -hmm. and, and the massing. 
Um, they're really elegant towers. Um, there, there are a number of, of fantastic examples. Uh, the Woolworth is, is one of the largest buildings in New York City, uh, one of the oldest. I believe for a short time it was the tallest building in the world. And uh, th that's a terrific yeah. example of, of New York skyscrapers. You also have the American Radiator Building, um, which is on the south side of Bryan Square Park, which, which is another favorite of mine. Uh, and we could rattle these off you know, one by one. Um, and so I think you find that when there's a lot of thoughtfulness that's uh, put into the design of these buildings, they can be really lovely neighbors and they can be quite beneficial to a city, especially one that's land constrained and one that has um, yeah. supply and demand imbalances that um, cause the value of, of, of land to increase in such that you need to densify it. Uh, the, the other school of, of building densely, of course, is more the Parisian school, you might say, yeah. or the Barcelona school. Uh, and, you know, medieval European cities broadly achieved relatively high densities without needing to go beyond eight, nine floors. Um, you have yeah. a, a very fine-grained pattern of, of buildings and of development um, with densities that in some cases exceed New York skyscraper districts um, just because of how the, the buildings are laid out. The streets tend to be narrower, so there's more space allocated for buildings in these cities than for, sh for streets and roads and, and perhaps parks. And um, you know, not, not to say one form is, is yeah. more optimal than the other, but I, I think those are, are kind of the di dichotomies that people look to um, for denser building patterns. Um, and both have yeah. their pros and both have their cons. The middle ground between those, I'd say, um, or, or maybe it's even an evolution of, of, of the skyscraper form, is what we've experienced in our cities the last 60 years and kind of in hyperdrive the last 25, which I'm not mm -hmm. sure is an optimal form of, of building cities. It, it takes inspiration from towers in the park, this Le Corbusier and the ideal that we yeah. can achieve wonderful and beautiful cities and uh, satisfy all of our needs and all of our residents with having these large swaths of, of grass and open space um, punctuated by these, these large towers. Um, he, he had several plans, famously one for the demolition of this uh, central Paris to yeah. realize these skyscrapers. And I unfortunately think that it, it the departure from the early forms of skyscrapers into this more tower in the park model which still permeates a lot of development today, um, is, is yeah. not a, a great way of city building. Um, you see it in places yeah. like Dubai, places like um, Shanghai, places that have a lot of newfound wealth and are imbuing that back into the built environment, which on its face is a good thing to reinvest into a place as that's how we've realized our most beautiful and, and desirable places in the world, I, I think. Um, but it's with this post-1960 version of skyscrapers um and i i don't think that just saying if we build tall if we build with glass um and we build these large uh, effectively billboards for whatever corporation or uh city agency yeah. are within these that they're inherently good because they they kind of miss what the early skyscrapers and the most dense sectors of of medieval cities or or renaissance cities had which uh was a fine gradedness on the ground and interaction with the space yeah. really great yeah. urban form. Um, these places are, I think in many respects, antisocial, they eschew the city, they turn their backs on it. And, yeah. um, you can never have a great building that stands in isolation. It needs to be a part of a larger fabric of a place. So it, it's, yeah. it's not to say that all new skies here are bad and all old ones are good. Cause there's certainly many good new examples and, and bad older examples. Um, but, it tends to be secondary to um, the the urban form. Um, what, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I should talk about like towers in the park exactly. The well, that, that's that was the main philosophy. And but the the point is, as you also discussed, well, you see them in in Dubai, in uh, in Hong Kong, well, also here in Rotterdam, for example. Uh, these towers are extremely introverted and. They're not really towers in the park. They're towers in the park in the city. So they were maybe designed for the for the park, uh, and they're completely introvert. They don't have any relationship with the urban fabric around it whatsoever. For the most park I, I checked for myself. I went to Rotterdam some time ago. I went by all these towers, and the vast majority was extremely introverted. They only had like one entrance, 
and maybe some some shops here and there but i saw a lot of just blank facades with only glass or only stone or just nothing and well like you described i think it's ex- extremely important that the building has some kind of a relationship with the urban fabric around it and actually contributes rather than only well taking and bring in people yeah it, it's it's something uh that I think people broadly have trouble understanding because um, we like to batch things in, in silos or we like to silo things off and say, this is all good or this is all bad. It's easier to understand the world around us yeah. when we think that way. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, simply having new forms um, and simply having, I think in, in the Rotterdam example, star architecture at this really grand scale <laughs> in and of itself doesn't mean that it will be good. Um, I think there can be excellent examples of it, but when you only yeah. consider the site in a vacuum of its surroundings and the relationship to the street and the buildings and the culture and identity of a place beyond that, um, you usually find projects um, aren't, aren't ultimately successful. Um, but it, it's it's a tough thing to balance because there can be isolated examples here yeah. and there in this genre that do really well. But I, I would say, as a rule of thumb, no matter how large the building is, I, there may be an upper bound to what's desirable. It's it's not something for, for me to say or to be so prescriptive and say a city can only have buildings yeah. that are 200 feet tall. Um, there are certain neighborhoods, certainly, that it doesn't make sense to. But um, I, I think it really matters what the street level interaction is and then the quality of that design moving forward such that it's a really elegant addition to a city and not just a large block um which yeah is yeah it's it's nuanced as with everything <laughs> yeah yeah 100 yeah so then there's another factor the landmark factor as mm. in politicians developers aiming to build a landmark to well put their munip- municipality on the map however uh, yeah, insignificant that municipality or place might be. Uh, just like, well, well, just a certain measuring contest, let's say it like this. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know, like, as someone living in New York with some of the tallest towers on this planet, what do you think of that? Like, it, I, I, myself, I don't think it makes sense. And I think, yeah, municipalities should or places should actually look for other qualities. But what do you think? So, I think what's important to to know in, in the context of New York is that the skyscrapers we have today are are a result of the prosperity of the city beforehand. So in a lot of yeah. places, they especially newly developed cities, we've talked about this before. This is a real passion of mine, thinking through places that are built from scratch. Um, they, they think that identity is created and wonder is realized through these grand pieces of architecture. Um, and in some isolated cases that may be true, but the, the equation should actually be flipped. It's great places that are great beforehand, um, that have a lot of prosperity and that have a, a great deal of action and excitement that give birth to skyscrapers. Um, that's why yeah. it feels a little bit more natural in somewhere like New York or somewhere like Chicago, um, to say nothing of their more limited, um, let's say pre 19th century fabric. Um, so we, we don't have a lot of the same issues that central cores in Europe, Europe may have, or, or East Asia may have, for example, um, in, in select contexts, yeah. but, um, they were a result of, of this prosperity of the city. You can't reach that as well, starting from the end of the equation. You know, it, it yeah. has to be the end result. And uh, th- these buildings were only erected because uh, developers and in uh, cities generally had to build higher to realize a certain yep. amount of returns. They didn't build them abstractly, and I think that's why Dubai is, is in a lot of other Gulf cities that have been. Uh, sprung up in the last two decades um, leaves people with some I, I don't know what the the right word here is maybe cognitive dissonance um, because there was nothing there before and they think the the way to realize a great place is just to put great buildings that are often 
isolated um, monuments unto themselves. And for those who, who visit Dubai or Doha or Riyadh or wherever it may be, um, I, there's this intuitive sense that, well, why were these skyscrapers built here? They, they don't seem to have any connection to the place. And you visit the old souks and the more historic parts of it, yeah. these cities, and they feel much more natural. And you may have uh, a minaret that rises several hundred feet, or you might have older apartment buildings such as Sana'a um, uh, in Yemen that rise 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 feet tall, um, very early skyscrapers um, that feel much more natural. And I think it's because it's a result of, of these places that are growing into themselves and evolving organically as opposed yeah. to trying to uh, cut to the end. Uh, and so yeah. uh, I, I, if, if I were to advise anyone who, who's trying to realize an identity for their place, I, I would say starting with the skyscraper is, is the exact uh, opposite place to start. You, you must start yeah. it at the beginning and, and how do you make a place fundamentally good for your people? And over the course of years and decades and generations, they'll decide what the form of the city, uh, what form makes the most sense. Um, and that will figure itself out, which is an answer a lot of people don't want to hear. But I think it's it's the way that we realize our, our best places. Yeah. Well, I agree 100%. And then, I mean, I'm... Dubai is, of course, an extreme example, and they really did build like the tallest building on earth. So, I mean, you could even make a case for that Dubai actually succeeded in building a landmark in that it is really special. But any like average size Dutch or German or whatever town, uh, which is not really on the map and, and decides to build like a 100 meters tower, uh, I don't know exactly in feet, I guess, like a 300 feet yep. tower. Well, yeah, will it really put them on a map? I'm not sure. And especially if the city has like a very nice historical uh, city center, I think it might even be detrimental to the entire experience of the place and, well, uh, scare people off certain areas where you just get these, well, detrimental effects of skyscrapers. So um, in New York, do you have any places where you think like, well, this place has really been screwed over by skyscrapers? as opposed to other places that are really enriched by skyscrapers? Yeah, um, I, I think the, the classic example is the financial district in, in lower Manhattan. Um, is This pre-1916 um, city that had very organic yeah. streets, Dutch streets, uh, New Amsterdam. <laughs> and so they, yeah. they wind and they're meandering and they are, are now almost canyons in, in some senses because the streets are very narrow and the relationship to yeah. these buildings that are several hundred up to a thousand, you know, maybe 1500 feet tall, um, less so the Freedom Tower um, at One World Trade because that kind, kind yeah. of is, is in its own area that has enough light and space that the impact is um, a, a little bit more restrained. Um, but when you're walking around Lower Manhattan, the financial district near Wall Street, it certainly does feel windswept. It feels dark. It feels a little glum. Uh, there's some awe to that space as well because there's there's very few places in the world where, where you'll get that impact. Um, and that was, at least theoretically, the reason why um, the earliest zoning ordinances were adopted. There was, uh, I, I might be misappropriating this, um, but I believe it's the um, Equitable Life Building Mm -hmm. in lower Manhattan, uh, which really spawned the first uh, series of zoning codes in New York because there was no light that was getting to the ground due to the massing of the building. And so th there's definitely places in lower Manhattan <clears throat> where it, it feels as though the skyscrapers, even though they are so core to the identity of New York, um, are perhaps a little overpowering. But you, you step back and you go to perhaps Midtown, um, Central Park South, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. Um, these are places that have skyscrapers in the definitional yeah. sense, um, but they're really just large residential buildings. And oh, and there are some office buildings that yeah. are smattered in, in between. Um, and it has a much different effect. And I think those places are, are also quintessentially New York. And there, there is a great deal of charm to them and they're very desirable places to live as well um, because they have 
a real vibrancy and life to the neighborhoods. So if you were to compare and contrast lower Manhattan or now a lot of those jobs have since moved to Midtown near Times Square to the Upper West Side or the Upper East Side or even the new residential neighborhoods in Long Island City or downtown Brooklyn, it feels entirely different um, because there's much more mixed use. There's people who are living there. They're, They're not nine to five neighborhoods or eight to six or eight to eight neighborhoods. And they have local restaurants, they have a little bit of local character. Yep. But if you're in Midtown, you have the same salad chain, the same bread chain, the same bagel chain, the same what have you. It's the yep. same lunch places. There's some larger steakhouses. Um, and of course, they're, they're overrun by tourists, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. We should embrace tourists in our cities, yep. which is a whole other conversation, um, as I think they, they really do provide great vibrancy and uh, to a place that that's very desirable um but the composition of those neighborhoods feels off in some senses uh versus when when you're in the upper east sides upper west sides long cities of the world it feels it feels different and um more beneficial yeah yeah so no specialty stores in those areas where it's all bland why what scares away like the the specialty stores, the interesting family-led mm-hmm. restaurants, etc. It's fundamentally a, a, an issue of land rents and and the cost of land. Um, yeah, Midtown may have it's not perhaps the highest in North America, but among the highest uh, land value in the world. And because of that, you have yeah. to yield a, a certain rent to to justify the investment into a building. If, if you had just, uh, let's say Ruben buys, uh, so congratulations, Ruben, you're now the owner of a, a new 60 story office tower in Midtown Manhattan. And um, you're struggling <laughs> with some of the office rents above because less commuters are coming in to Grand Central and Penn Station into the offices. Um, there, there are more people who are staying home doing remote work. And you found that you need to increase the rent other places to help uh, offset this, this large investment you've made and, and to help and not go south. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to raise the rent on the retail spaces, which you, you know you're yeah. likely able to get. It was a different story a year and a half ago in the middle of COVID in New York where people were proclaiming the city dead, which of course it never was. But retail had, had certainly mm-hmm. uh, been, been dealt a, a very significant blow. And, and now it's recovered somewhat. Um, the only people in, in chains and types of businesses that can occupy these spaces are large institutional national chains with high credit. When you buy a building um, and you're trying to get a debt on it, and let's say you you have a $300 million mortgage, the bank will not underwrite that deal if you have Ruben's Trinkets as the ground floor tenant. Um, But if you have (laughs) Chipotle or CVS or Bank of America, they say, okay, these are high credit tenants, I feel comfortable with them being the space, they're going to pay the most money because they're the most well capitalized firms. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that permeates out from that core, um, which is why in wealthier neighborhoods, they tend to devolve to either having extremely luxurious boutiques, which have some level of identity and, and very luxurious restaurants to ba- basically uh, a corporatized zone. Um, and that's yeah, entirely yeah, yeah. Uh, rational if you're a building owner and trying to, to get the highest rent possible, not because you're greedy, but because you have to pay your rent uh, or you have to pay, sorry, your yeah. mortgage uh, if rents are, are being uh, impaired elsewhere. Whereas if you had a, a fully occupied building and you were more than meeting your debt service, you're more than meeting your returns that you were going to offer to your, inv- your investors, you might be able to take a risk. You might be able to take a, a new upstart uh, restaurant or a, uh, a making it up uh, a boutique hair salon, um, whereas you would not be able to be in that position if you are hemorrhaging rents elsewhere in the building. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an interesting dynamic there, I think, because the areas in the city where you have a lot of small shops and, and just interesting shops, interesting restaurants are all often... Uh, very much liked but they are yeah these independent businesses are not interesting enough as you said to get the mortgages or the financing or the trust to be able to sustain in very high value environments so or at least well very high ground price 
environment. So I guess you get this effect where these are pushed away to places where it's a bit cheaper to rent, which then becomes uh, a more interesting place to stay, which might lead to higher rent prices and more development and then another wave of uh, gentrification, you could say, and sending these specialty stores away. Do you see that right? So it's a really difficult challenge. Neighborhoods that have a certain level of, of desirability that bring in more residents, bring in more tourists, bring in more visitors to take in what makes them wonderful in the first place. Um, and it's not uncommon, certainly in New York, and, and I, I know with Amsterdam and, and cities around the mm -hmm. world, that the areas that are more marginalized have lower rents for, let's say, the retail store, storefronts for the apartments, enable a higher degree of creativity and enable one to be one to take more risks with their business ventures yeah and then <laughs> that attracts these visitors and new residents yeah. and, and new tourists who come who increase the values it, whether they move or whether um there's just higher consumption and that does lead to gentrification if you don't allow for more people to come into the neighborhood so if if you were to keep this neighborhood in stasis and not build any more buildings, allow the rents to, to increase, you would see higher levels of displacement. Um, you would see businesses that um, go out of business that made the neighborhood what it was in the first place. Um, wait, can, Ruben, can you hear me? I Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Sorry, I will have to cut that little bit too, just because my screen is gone. Frozen. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, um, okay, great. Um, so the business that made the neighborhood great in the first place end up getting priced out, which is incredibly ironic. And you see these post-gentrification neighborhoods that are not too dissimilar to the cores of the cities that have some level of sterility, have some level of homogeneity. How do you best handle the, the growth that wants to come into these neighborhoods with the institutions that made them great in the first place? You're going to have to welcome some level of change. Yeah, you're going to have to say, all right, we we have a one story building here um, that might have had a local record store or might have had a coffee shop that the neighborhood loved. But if we don't build a four story, five story, six story apartment building with maybe 30 apartments for people to live in and maybe two new retail spaces that guarantees those 30 people who would move in that neighborhood anyway, would go find housing in the neighborhood and displace people who were living there before. So there's yeah. this really difficult notion to explain to people who are in gentrifying neighborhoods or neighborhoods where they feel as though uh, they're gentrifying and experiencing some level of displacement that you need to welcome these larger buildings that to you uh, are signs that you're being pushed out of your neighborhood when in fact those large buildings are enabling other folks or the people who lived there before to stay so it's a very difficult thing to wrap your head around because the neighborhood's going to change no matter yeah. what, either you keep the neighborhood looking as it, it, it did before and all the businesses are changed out, all the residents are, are forced elsewhere um, and you might have the same uh, bones of, of the neighborhood, but it'll certainly feel yeah. different and people will move on to the next one and so on and so forth. Or you can welcome that next increment of change and say, we, we understand that the composition is going to change and that's the nature of cities. His, I mean, in, historically, that's how every city um, grew. The Amsterdam yep. didn't look like it did today. It does today always? Uh, neither did New York. Neither did Berlin or Paris or London or any of the most desirable cities in the world. Uh, they allowed for that next level of growth and to bring in people from around the world to bring their ideas and, and share them um, and make those cities better. So we need to embrace this mindset of allowing our neighborhoods to grow that next increment higher which is something yeah. oh sorry i just had a sound <laughs> to, to allow our neighborhoods to grow that next increment of density higher which is something chuck marone and the folks at strong towns advocate for um because that's where we see real dynamism in our places when we allow more people to take part in them share their ideas from other parts of the world from other parts of the country and to not be under 
such intense threats and pressures of, of pricing um, such that they don't feel that they can pursue the restaurant idea that they have or the fashion line or let, let's say they're an author or, or playwright, um, that they have the precariousness um, when neighborhoods don't welcome more growth that now you're entirely focused on how are you going to pay for your next rent bill? You're, you're not yep. focused on writing the next great play or creating the next great dish or just living, right? And so it's a very difficult balance. Um, and ultimately, some of those neighborhoods may become whether skyscrapers in New York or more dense structures as in, in Paris or, or Barcelona or even parts of Amsterdam. Um, and yep. we just need to be better about understanding change doesn't always have to be bad it can be great but change is going to come and so we can either choose to uh to to not allow it and these neighbors will become much more expensive or we can embrace it and this is my my general philosophy on the world it's it's this this building optimism philosophy that we can create great places and we know that they're going to have to change but that's not a bad thing it's actually an opportunity um yeah so yeah that would be my so, answer <laughs> I think uh, there's something you said, like, so the, uh, and that made me thinking, uh, one of the problems might be that some areas are designed in like a very coherent way. And the designers had really one grand vision for, for all the houses in the area, and it all fits really mm -hmm. well together. And then increasing the density or adding buildings within that structure would really uh, deteriorate the coherence. And I think here in the Netherlands, we have some of these neighborhoods, which were really like one master plan. And so mm -hmm. I really think that master planning in general can uh, cause these problems uh, because they don't allow for any flexibility and it's, it's all one unity, it's all harmonious, but the harmony is not designed in such way that it allows for incremental rising dense densities in some places because you will destroy the line of the facade or mm -hmm. just the general landscaping won't work anymore. So, but that's, I think more of a problem in some European contexts, uh, especially when they're very master planned and very well thought of. Uh, but I can also imagine in <laughs> suburbs where everything is more or less one to two stories tall, it doesn't really go well with the people living there. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating thing where there's almost no level of organization in our, our most organic cities, the beginning of them. Yeah. And yet those are some of the most beautiful places. There, there was, to the extent that there was any level of coordination, there may have been a developer or two who would develop a single block and another would take into inspiration and say well i like what they did over there and so maybe i'll do something similar over here and gradually neighborhoods come to embody a certain feeling or a certain identity um but it wasn't mandated from the top down i think a lot of the similarity that you might see in canal houses in amsterdam or in brownstones in new york is that that was just what was local the materials so you you have brick structures uh that let, let's say you have red brick structures like in Philadelphia. Um, it's because of, of the local uh, yeah. clay that, that was used um, that lent to a certain type of color and led to a certain type of quality of brick. Um, similar in, in New York with its brownstones. In every city that has sort of this natural heritage, uh, Paris has it with its, its limestone and sandstone as well. So um, these places have some level of coherence. And of course, Paris was master planned by uh, houseman and so there there was master planning but there wasn't master developing so it wasn't as though there was one single builder there was in fact hundreds upon thousands there's many designers and architects and so even though there was one large coherent plan they were carried out by many different masons and many different laborers and many different designers imbuing little idiosyncrasies into these places um, in service of a larger plan that leads something to be really beautiful and lovely and, and of yeah. course, there was a great value in, in making these very beautiful buildings. Today, I think the difference with, with master planned communities or, or master developed communities is that there's the coherence, but there aren't the idiosyncrasies. So it's not yeah. 100 different builders. It's one. It, it's not um, local materials. They're synthetic 
or artificial yeah. and they're shipped in from God knows where. Um, the plan is, is not as thoughtful as perhaps older, more elegant, uh, perhaps in the U.S. context, more Beaux-Arts inspired plans may have been. Um, beauty is never thought of. It's entirely transactional. It's how do we sell as many plots of land? How do we yeah. fit in as many homes as possible? Um, and beauty has become something that is something of, uh, at, at the, the low end, it's seen as superfluous. And at more extremes, people think that it's inherent to a certain ideology, which we've talked of before. Um, but it couldn't be further from the truth. The most beautiful places that we really admire, whether they were built from a guy and his cousins in Brooklyn or a large master planned city such as Paris had beauty at the heart of these plants. Yep. There was a great deal of pride in the creation of these places. And I think to some extent that's missing today. Um, and people may talk of that. They may say, look at these expensive architects that we hired and all of these renderings that we paid for. Um, but if there isn't that core level of thoughtfulness or pride in what you're building or care of, of beauty, you're not going to have the same result. And yeah. so I don't think any project that is overseen by one person and built by one set of people and designed by one set of people can ever truly be successful. The most successful places come when they're shaped of many hands and you get various different idiosyncrasies and quirks and, and stories imbued into those places, which make any great city. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, Tying that to Europe, and what have been your greatest takeaways from what you saw there? It feels a lot more organic than you get in U.S. cities, and it, perhaps because there's less rigidity in the uh, gridded plans. Uh, many American cities, to the extent that there is planning, a lot of them are, are unplanned, um, have very rigid grids that doesn't allow for a level of organicness that you might get with European cities. And I think to our point earlier of places being able to evolve to the next increment of density to welcome more people into the neighborhood yeah. and to allow for places to really find themselves, European cities have had centuries to do that. And I would think up until the last 50 or 60 years, they've been allowed to do that. So you might have a small shack that gives way to a two-story building that, that's perhaps wood-framed. Then it gives way to a three-story. It's perhaps brick, and then maybe there's um, there's a stone facade. If if someone realizes some level of wealth and imbues it back into into their community um, and into their into the built environment, and that process has been going on for for many centuries in the U.S. before we even had a chance to get the second or third level of intensity um, and to have places find their own identities. We basically cut it short. Yeah, we didn't allow them to find themselves. We we gave a very rigid layout for where they could 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 be planned, which in some respects is good. It, it's it's rational. It's a way to make sense of a largely complex and chaotic system. Um, mm -hmm. But it doesn't allow places to form own unique identities, yeah. where one building may pop out a foot into the street, another might have uh, a series of dormers that don't quite match up with the rest on the block, right? That they're able yeah. to, to find their own unique identities. Um, and I would say that's probably the greatest difference between U.S. and, and European cities um, historically, that um, th there's been this big divergence um, uh, where, where the U.S. has not been able to mature into itself where Europe, Europe has. And, and that's not to say every European city is fantastic. Um, it's not to say that every U.S. city is bad, but largely we're When, when you look for differences, you, you still have streets, you still have buildings, you still have cafes and restaurants and parks and public buildings and monuments, but they're a very different sort. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have much more stringent land use regulation in the U.S., you know, perhaps parking minimums, um, lot size minimums, unit minimums, which exist in some extent to Europe, but not as severe as they are here. Yeah, although uh, you could also make the case that the United States was in some respects, perhaps a bit more um, advanced even by not being tied to these archaic uh, medieval street patterns, but had the flexibility of the of the grid, which you could just yeah expand and expand and expand without limits. But also mm. looking at how a lot of American cities looked before 
well, the war in the 60s and the 70s when a lot of beautiful buildings were torn down uh, to make space for <laughs> the parking lots and, uh, yeah, big towers in the inner cities. Mm. I mean, there's American cities were doing pretty well. I, I think so as well. If, if you look at the pre-1920, pre-1930 American built environment, it's terrific. It, we Cities like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, um, the, in some West Coast cities, though, of course, those are, are much newer. There's a lot of stuff that's been done well and, and perhaps lessons learned from Europe and from cities around the world. But it's um, it's been stopped in its tracks. And I think that's broadly what, what there's a great deal of advocacy for now is to allow cities to return to an era where they can respond to their inherent needs yeah. um, as opposed to being ossified in amber and being so prescriptive. I, I've just finished uh, Nolan Gray's book, Arbitrary Lines, which is one of the uh, one of my favorite books I've read this year. But it's um, one of the most concise and common sense accounts of Ooh, yeah. the history of zoning and, uh, and, and more broadly land use regulation in the U.S. to show yeah. how we've really paralyzed our cities over the last 100 years yeah give or take a decade or two um and ultimately his conclusion is that we have to abolish zoning and rethink it in the american context um to allow us to build the cities that that we used to that that are so revered um today and there's a lot of sense to that um it's not to say that every regulation is bad it's not to say that any level of control or planning is bad. Uh, I'm an urban planner by training, <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I I do value planning. Um, but I think in the modern American context, we've been far too prescriptive and restrictive and prohibitive in how we enable our places to grow. Yeah, yeah. So, as a developer, uh, what do you think your main responsibility is in solving these problems? Because of course, there is a lot of planning problems and things that have to be changed in the form of rules but looking at developers are they only the executive force or do they also have a responsibility mm. it's a really good question i think that some developers view themselves as nothing more than builders of the places they're allowed to build they yep. say okay i i can only build one home per half acre. I have to build a certain amount of setbacks into each of these properties. If I'm building a larger subdivision community, I have to build 30 foot wide streets and I'll do that. I won't yeah. rail against the status quo. It makes my job more difficult. It's more expensive to do that. I'll just provide housing where I'm allowed to do it. And to some respect, you, you, you can understand people who operate in this way. Yeah. And it's a lot of, of how the U.S. developed along the Sun Belt, Florida, Texas, California, Arizona, Tennessee, and continues to go on North and South Carolina. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one way of looking at your responsibility as, as a builder, which is to basically say, I'm here to provide homes wherever <laughs> a, a city or municipality yeah. lets me build them. However, they let me build them. I'm going to do that. And I think that's traditionally how development has been carried out over the last 70 years and, and probably larger than that. There is another strain of developers, which I find myself in, and mm -hmm. I think there are, there are more increasingly do, who say our obligation is not just to provide homes, even though that's what we are, we're, we're builders, but to perhaps make them a little more aspirational so that we're not just building housing, but we're adding key components to community. So we may build a six unit apartment building with a coffee shop and a gallery on the ground floor because we want a place where the community can come together, where artists can exhibit their work, yeah. where perhaps on weeknights we can have local music for space of community. And, and people have been doing this for, for many centuries. It's not new, but it's a divergence from the status quo of American development patterns um, that it's much more of an obligation to shape the communities that you're a part of as opposed to just throwing your hands up and saying, whatever, I'm going to revert to the lowest common yeah. denominator. And 
it's something that I think largely the public outside of the fields of the built environment doesn't quite understand what developers do. They, there's this notion that developers are just fat cats and <laughs> greedy and they just want to extract as much money as they can. But a developer can be a small yeah. businesswoman who decides to build a, a small retail shop and maybe a home for herself above. She's a developer. A developer can be somebody who buys an abandoned warehouse and puts in a brewery and uh, perhaps a bowling alley on the side. You know, they, they don't have to be these large slick backed hair yeah. um, caricature <laughs> that people view of, of developers. It's really anybody who brings different parties together through a, an economic angle to deliver value into the built environment. Um, and I think optimistically that there are more and more people who are aligning themselves in this way of, of building as opposed to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And, and in this latter form of building, there's a profound obligation to your place, not just um, because I think we, we all recognize as developers, the things that we build have a profound impact on, on those around us. Um, but it, it, it's humbling. Yeah. What we build can perhaps last for 50, 100, 200, 500 years. And if that's the case, why not build something that one can be proud of, that communities can be proud of, that they can rally around? After all, we have many of these structures uh, that, that we value so much that we uh, enact legislations that you can't change them in historic districts yeah. um, because they're so special. And th th this lends itself well to a topic uh, that, that we've discussed for, before of stewardship, where um, you're, you're really a, a provisional caretaker of, of your city or of your region or, or of your town or wherever you may be. And it's your job as a developer or a planner or an architect or anyone who's involved in the built environment or just someone who's a, a concerned citizen um, to care for yeah. the legacy that's been passed down to you and to add to it. And unfortunately, I think many places today forget the second part. They say, we understand that we have this lovely historic district and we want to be stewards and conservationists and ensure that generations for posterity will be able to enjoy that which we enjoy today. But they forget critically the second part, which is that we also have to add to that legacy. If we were only yeah. caring about the past, we would never be looking forward. We would never create great places for the future. And it's, it's quite sad to me. Because if there was any time in the past, let's say London in the 16th century, Amsterdam in the 18th century, Rome, or maybe flip those, Amsterdam in the 16th, London in the 18th, Rome in the, in the first century BC decided, nah, this is good. We, we don't need to build any more beyond this. Uh, we like what we have in the past. Then we would yeah. be deprived of immeasurable value in, in our cities and our places and, and I, I think it's wrong to, to only and profoundly wrong to to only care of the past. We, we ha stewardship means also pushing our places forward in the future. Yeah, but in a caring way, of course, and uh, and sensitive of the context, of course, and of the people living there. Um, but OK, so, yeah, well, <laughs> that was a whole uh, handful. And <laughs> I think I agree. I, th I think that's a beautiful way to uh, to state it. Growing a place is also more than just a one-dimensional challenge. There are a lot of things that need to be factored in. And I feel that nowadays we have a lot of engineers designing our cities, uh, but they mm. often are way too focused on one parameter, like optimizing the efficiency of moving traffic or safety or optimizing for only density. So what do you think are the dangers of such one-dimensional policies and one-dimensional uh, design focuses? It's really well thought through. I, I agree with, with the premise um, that there is a, it's not desirable, let's say at the very least, for people to only uh, view cities through one lens um, I, it's it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around um, because cities are so complex. Yeah. If if you were to say the um, my only job as a human being 
is to wake up, breathe, eat, and go to sleep. Okay, you may be fulfilling the most basic functions yeah. of, uh, of being a person, but you're not um, giving credence to the complexity and the breadth of um, beauty that, that human life is, right? It's it just kind of reducing it to one very utilitarian mode of, of operating. And I think that's what our cities are reduced to when we only think through one mode of, of operating, let's say the traffic engineer. My job is not to care of the streets, how people inter- interact with them, how people yeah. might walk across them, um, how it'll feel to, to be occupied in this environment. I only care how fast the car can go through. Yeah. And if, if that's your operating uh, mandate, then you'll build roads that are quite wide, that uh, are unsheltered from trees likely because yeah. they're so wide that they're paved with very smooth asphalt. Um, they lend to a certain scale that ultimately becomes more like a highway and less like a street. Um, and the decisions like that taken within a vacuum can have ripples effects yeah so that building owners and we've seen this in the past in the u.s and i think to a lesser extent in europe um would have said my only view uh, or my own my only mandate is to ensure that i make money right now it's costing me more money to keep my building um upright than it would be to demolish it and build a parking lot i would have to pay less in taxes i could generate more revenue and that's what i'll do so in yeah. the 50s 60s 70s and 80s as american cities were hollowed out the traffic engineers were focused on widening the streets. The, the developers or, or property owners were focused on, uh, and cities as well, as, as cities would demolish their own structures for parking lots, yeah. were focused on um, revenue generation and, and simply getting people in and out of the cities. Shopkeepers were only concerned with, uh, with I mean, which is understandable. Um, we, we need to have, uh, we, we care less of community we care more of commerce and wherever that commerce moves, we'll move to as well. So they move out to malls in the suburbs. Um, and you have, I think, a hollowing out of, of place. Uh, yeah. It's not a place that anyone particularly wants to be because it becomes so utilitarian with everybody only thinking in their lane. Whereas cities, just like people, are incredibly complex. Yeah, One 100%. has to have an understanding that the, there's a domino effect um, to every every single action, and perhaps a butterfly effect is, is a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, if I make this road wider, it's going to make people not want to walk along the street, and perhaps it, it might lead to people being killed. And yeah. we can talk about the accountability of, of traffic engineers uh, in the tens of thousands of deaths that occur on American streets every day by the, the, the wheel of cars. Yeah. Um, so now people say, okay, the street is too wide. I don't want to walk by it. It's too dangerous. I don't want to walk along it. The businesses on that street will shudder. Um, they, there's even less reason. It's, it's almost a self-fulfilling and a vicious cycle. Um, so now the main street is, is nowhere a place to be. The buildings are, are not occupied. They start to fall apart. And after a certain amount of time, they're going to fall apart uh, or Sorry, I repeated that. Uh, they're they're going to become yeah. decrepit and, and they'll be demolished, and um, yeah. that's that's kind of the effect that that stems from this one decision to make our streets wider and only care of cars. Yeah. Whereas if you cared more comprehensively of a place and say we don't care about moving cars as fast, but ensuring that whoever lives here can have the best quality experience and, and best quality of life possible, we're going to make very comprehensive. Uh, efforts to to create this place so we understand we need transportation to go through but does that have to be a car could we more effectively move people by buses or by bikes or enabling higher walkability or by yeah. other forms of public transit okay now we're thinking differently and if you have bikes and walkers and and buses coming through well then maybe you would want shops that people would easily see to and fro uh, whereas if you're a car you're moving too fast you would never stop by a shop but if you're yeah. walking by or biking by, you might say, well, that looks like a great Mexican yeah, place. Yeah. Let me get a burrito, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> or a flower shop or a plant yeah. shop or whatever it might be. Um, and so then you have a, a, a virtuous cycle, which leads to the conversation we had earlier about neighborhoods that see some level of gentrification. And uh, because of the success that their fabric has enabled 
or, or allowed for, um, lean into that even further. And I, I think cities all too often uh, are too utilitarian and, and each department only thinks through their one myopic lens and that leads to a vicious cycle. Whereas if they cooperative with one another and the transportation department talk with the planning department, talk with the finance department, talk with the housing department, they would all be able to come together and say, we can all fulfill our priorities and our goals and our needs or whatever our mandates are. Um, but we could do that in a better way, all working together yeah. and create a better place that will ultimately uh, lead us to exceed our goals beyond where yeah. we are. And and that turns into a virtuous cycle. Well, um, yeah. So, yeah. Although I can also imagine that um, if you try to plan everything comprehensively and try to uh, fully take all the complexities of a street uh, in consideration, uh, the design challenge will, will get out of hand at some point because even four departments can perhaps not grasp the full complexity of one street as, an, as a space and what happens. But perhaps moving to the last question, do you have any good books on good urbanism you could really recommend? I'm, uh, I'm a great lover of books. And I have many different recommendations. I'll try to, yeah. I'll, I'll try to, to narrow them down. Um, I, I would say it depends on, on what angle you're, you're looking um, at a city from. Jeff Speck's books on walkability are terrific, both walkable city and walkable city rules. Yeah. Um, Jan Gell has, has many great books, uh, The Soft City and Cities for People. Um, Jane Jacobs is, is kind of the preeminent figure in this canon of, yeah. of urbanism yeah. and creating great neighborhoods and streets. And so it, death and life of great American cities is fantastic, but, but so is um, vital little plans. Um, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of really good contemporary books that have come out that um, perhaps we can have as an appendix to, uh, to, to this, uh, maybe, maybe in the, in the note, show notes. Yeah. Um, sure. But there are also many fantastic older books. So Camila Sitte, uh, his art of building cities is terrific. Um, that that's more of an urban design, but I think you can generally get a lot of really good uh, value from it uh, from today. Um, there's oh god, yeah. um, I probably have about ten or fifteen more that I, I'm going to feel so bad after we get off this. I can I add a, I a link to the website and uh, send people there with all your all your books. I I. I Definitely. And I'm, I'm trying to rack my head to think particular to, to good urbanism. Uh, you know, I, I think Street Fight by um, J- Janice Sadiq Khan is a, another good contemporary book. Um, but there's there's several more. Um, and, and those are really more just from an, an urbanist perspective and less so about these broader notions of, of beauty and creating lovely places um, that I think these books all have very core components of that. Yeah. Um, but if, if you're thinking strictly of, of perhaps creating um, more beautiful places, Leon Creer talks and writes extensively about this. Um, Andres Duani, uh, Elizabeth Plater Zyberg uh, yeah. write, write at length about this as well. And, and a lot of the new urbanist writers in the U.S. context. Um, but I wonder, Ruben, for you, from, from a, a European context, who are some of the figures and voices that that you would turn to and um, would recommend for somebody across the pond uh, to read, or, or even others in, in your own backyard, because uh, I'm always looking for more perspective. Yeah, well, the funny thing is you have already mentioned some of my favorites. Uh, so, uh, of course, Leon Creer, Anders Tuani, yeah, Camilo Sitte, of course, those are the older sources. I also really like uh, Nir Buras's book, The Art of Classic Planning, which is very comprehensive. And yeah, during my study, I also had, of course, well, Jane Jacobs, John Gale, uh, it all came by. Uh, but the funny thing is that the older books weren't really, well, except for Jane Jacobs, uh, weren't really used during my studies. So that's, huh. I think, interesting. And especially books like Camilo Sitte and all the, the works that really shaped urban design as it is, which... I believe happened uh, in Germany at the end of the 19th century, but also works by early Dutch urbanists. So, yeah, on the front of books, I actually have a lot of books on my website 
uh, under the resources tab and it will add a lot more. And I've actually made some work into really categorizing them well and making them easily findable. So that might be worth checking out. Um, but it will definitely have to add some more titles. I think Jane Jacobs is not yet there. Shame on me. Young Gil, <laughs> same. I, I'm really fascinated by the, the books by uh, Anne Sussman and also A Theory of Architecture by Nico Salangaros. Uh, very, but those are like very on the on the architecture front. Uh, but I think they also apply to urbanism if you really take them seriously. Um, and I do think that the the importance of architecture in the space of urbanism is undervalued. We we just often get in the urban plans um, volume studies and white blocks. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's way too limited and. Um, yeah, they really need to think way harder about how the architecture influences the experience on the street. And some kinds of architecture just don't work as, as well on eye level than others. Um, and I think once, Absolutely. Yeah, they, once they acknowledge that, we will get way better cities. Do you have some last things you would like to add during this episode? Well, I, I think we, we've covered so much between these, these two and, and still so much to to go through again, I, I have some notes that I've taken as well that I, I know will we'll touch base offline. Um, I, I maybe put a feather on, on your last point of the importance of marrying good architecture with good urban planning and urbanism, um, because that's people, again, the, the notion of being in, in your own silo. Um, people are so focused on good planning or good architecture, and they don't meet as frequently as, as one would like them to. Um, and so that's, I think, more broadly something in the U.S. that we need to push towards. But we, we need to fix our urbanism first <laughs> yeah. before, you know, we, we, we need to build very well in our existing places. But far too many places in America don't have fundamental good urban bones, um, which is a much broader issue for sustainability, affordability, resiliency. Um, and if we can do both at the same time, that's, of course, my mission. And I, I know the mission of, of you as well. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a very difficult uh, tightrope to walk. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But also a beautiful challenge for the coming years. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, Kobe, thank you so much for being on again. Uh, I think we could fill many podcasts with excellent <laughs> content. So... Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me back, Ruben. I, I always love talking with you and, and getting an opportunity to be on the podcast is, is even better. Yeah. Um, so, so thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there might even be a third episode at some point. But uh, for now, uh, thank you so much. And uh, well, see you back soon. Hopefully. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, whether maybe it'll be a live one for the third, uh, yeah. third taping, whether in New York or Amsterdam. I would love to come to New York and I definitely need to go there at some point uh, to just do a big tour of the whole East Coast because I think there's plenty to see. And uh, <laughs> I definitely need some pictures for my uh, for my archives uh, <laughs> of all those cities. Oh, and I think as a native New Yorker, it, it being such a great admirer of, of all of your photography and, and, and your short films and um, just your quality of work. It's very difficult to find that. Um, and it's, it's selfishly, I, I want to see more of it. <laughs> Even though, it, like you, you might think New York, uh, there's certainly some places like, you know, Times Square or, or the Statue of Liberty or Empire State Building that get all that attention. Yeah. But when we go on our tour, uh, I'll show you all the little, hot spots or hidden spots that uh, you know become hot in, in, in recent years um, that could use some of uh, some of your trained eye on them perfect I would love to and uh, you're also of course always welcome in uh, in Europe anytime I it might be a 2023 trip but it, I I definitely have it on my calendar to come back amazing thanks so much Kobe thank you for listening to another episode of the aesthetic city podcast you can find links to Kobe's Twitter page and his articles on Medium in the show description. With The Aesthetic City, we hope to achieve lasting impact, but we do need support. So if you really like the mission of The Aesthetic City, consider supporting us as a patron. The Aesthetic City wants to grow and offer even more content. And with enough patrons, this continuation and further growth will be possible. 
And it's not for nothing, of course, because patrons receive early releases, exclusive content and access to the community. Find the Patreon link in the description below. If you liked this episode, please consider giving it a favorable review on Apple or Spotify. Find more information about this platform on theaestheticcd.com or follow our Twitter page. I hope to see you back soon. Thanks for listening. Until next time.